0: Well, this week we're starting a series in Colossians, and we're going to be going uh, verse by verse, expositionally, uh, through the entire book. It's four chapters, and it's going to take us the entire summer to get through it, uh, and so we're going to dedicate 10 weeks to it, and uh, we encourage you to even now begin diving into the book of Colossians, highlight it uh Mark questions down, because we're going to explore this whole text. We're actually going to end uh, in in August, and we're going to end the same Sunday that we're going to celebrate baptisms at Splash Kingdom. And so uh, it's going to be a great ending to the summer, and so encourage you that when you can be here, uh, that you would do so. And if you can't be here, then, hey, it's available for you up online, and you can uh, see all of it on video, and uh, we encourage you to catch up there. Uh, Colossians is a book uh, that is... Uh, really uh, just an incredible book. It's an incredible work by Paul as he wrote to this church in Colossae. Now, let me just kind of give you a little bit of background as you're turning uh, to Colossians. Uh, Colossae is a, a place that's about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Ephesus is the, the, the uh, book that is, we know of as Ephesians, and uh, it's a, a church that Paul and uh, Timothy uh, ultimately helped start, and then you've got Colossae 100 miles to the east, and Paul has never been to the church in Colossae. Matter of fact, a guy named Epaphras most likely came, heard uh, what was going on in Ephesus, came, heard the gospel, and then took it, and he took it back to Colossae, where the gospel began to spread But Colossae used to be a prominent city. Uh, Back in the days, about 5th century BC, when Xerxes was king, he uh, was shown to be going through Colossae, but it kind of diminished. The the road uh, that used to go through there had actually gone around it and went to another place called Laodicea, which is the more prominent town in this time. And so it's coming, it's almost like living in Wills Point, you know, and it kind of you're thinking 80 is going to be the the big main thoroughfare, and then they build 20, right? And so it changes a little bit. And so now everybody's going around. Colossae going to Laodicea and you've got this prominent community that once was something and now it's just there and the gospel is spreading and it is making a movement there but here's, the, here's this challenge. While the gospel is made known there, what you have is, you have a group of Gentiles which make up most of the city, and then you have a small group of Jewish people there that are actually there from the days of Antiochus the Great, 2nd the great, century, century BC. Uh, he was the father of Antiochus Epiphanes, and they're there, and they've kind of made over kind of this uh, conglomeration of people, but... You've got some that are there, Judaism, then you've got some Gentiles, and they believe in myth, uh, mysticism and philosophy and all these different things. And now they've heard the gospel about Jesus Christ. And so here's what's kind of happened in Colossae. They say, oh, we believe in Jesus. We believe that he died on the cross. But then you've got these Jewish people over here. They're saying, well, you still need circumcision. You still need to wash your hands and, and make sure everything's clean externally. You need to still keep some of these Jewish things. And then you've got all these other people here that are these Gentile people who go, well, Jesus is great, but there's this higher thought that we need to know, and it's mysticism, it's philosophy, it's what we now know later on is what we call Gnosticism, it's the higher thought to know is where we get the word know from Gnosticism, and um, it's the thought that they there's more than just Christ, that it's Christ plus higher knowledge, it's Christ plus works, it's Christ plus legalism. And so all of these things are kind of mingled in this church. And so as he addresses this church in chapter 1, he's going to address some of the common things that are happening there. And so as we open up our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, we're going to dive in and we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. Y'all ready for this? Yeah, sounds like it. Maybe we should pray and go home. Y'all, I mean, y'all you know, you want to do that? So here we go. Y'all ready for this? Amen. Colossians chapter 1, starting Verse 1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae. The faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And so in verses 1 through 3, you see that Paul is giving his normal salutation. He says, hey, me and Timothy, our brothers, are praying for you. And then he says something in verse 4. He says, we're praying for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of God's people. Essentially what he is saying is is that we have heard the work that is happening in Colossae. And although we've never been there, we've never seen you, we've never met you in person, we hear that there is indeed a movement happening in the area of Phrygia and in more than that, the place of Colossae, that town. And so we praise God for that. And so, like, there are people, and I even have friends that came from Dallas today, that they came only because they've heard that God's doing amazing things here. And so they sit, even in this service right now, because they've heard that God is doing things here. And that's ultimately the the product of every single Christian's life. Like, people ought to be attracted to you because they hear of the work that God is doing in you. Like, there is no point in becoming a Christian to follow the idea of Christian thought unless you're going to allow him to change your heart and your life. Like, that is the product of Christianity. The product is this, that you were once dead in your sin, but now you've been made alive in Christ. You were once blind, but now you can see. You were once lame, but now you can walk. Do you understand this? And people ought to be able to see the difference. The most confusing thing among Christian churches is simply this, is that you claim, you claim, you claim that you're a Christ follower, and you do do not look differently than anyone else, or for that matter, what you used to live like. And I talk to people all the time, and that is the one question, well, how can they claim to be a Christian, and yet they don't seem to follow Him? And here's the bottom line, is that they're not a Christian. Why? Because what Paul says is this, we have heard of your faith, we've seen what Christ is doing, and we praise God for that. And then in verse 5, it says, The faith and the love that spring from the hope that's stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard, is indeed the true message of the gospel you see what he says here? Like, this is really cool. He says, it's the faith and love that spring from the hope. And the word hope there is the word el-peace in the Greek. And it literally is the assurance that you have in knowing Jesus Christ. Like, there is a hope in knowing Christ in the gospel, and it is an assurance that never spoils or fades away. That is kept in heaven for you. That is 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 5, right? Now, the thing is this, is like, that word hope, LPs, is like the assurance that you know for sure. It's not to the general word hope that you and I oftentimes use. Like, you woke up this morning and many of you said this, man, I hope it doesn't rain today. <laughs> but, like, like, you didn't say that with any confidence. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you even looked at Weatherbug or you pulled up your little app on the Weather Channel and you looked at it and you're like, oh my goodness, what are all those yellow little balls on my phone? <laughs> And like you don't even understand. And like you're hoping that you're going to see the sun. And like you're hoping. But like there's no real assurance. Like you're not real positive of that. But here what Paul says is he says, "No, know, Knowing Christ, there is a hope. That you and I have as a believers to know that indeed our eternity, our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. It is something that we put confidence in. Why? Because it's stored up for you. And the word in the Greek "stored up" literally is the idea of a layaway program. Anybody, ladies, y'all, y'all remember layaway? Yes. All right. Praise God. Walmart brought it back a couple years ago. Okay. Well, the idea of layaway is that you set something aside that is, when it's paid for, it's yours. Well, that's the idea here. Paul says, you have a glorious hope in the gospel because of what Christ has done, and it's been laid away. It's stored up for you. Meaning, because you have put your faith in the gospel, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, you now have something that is secure. It is laid away, and it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what Christ has done on your behalf. Amen? That right there is something that you and I could actually preach and teach on. And the reason why we can is this. There is a movement that goes on across our nation. And the idea is this, is that Jesus is indeed good. And yes, we should put our faith in him. And yes, we should believe in him. And yes, uh, he gives assurance that he overcomes sin. But what happens, what happens when we do something that is just enormous, that on the grand scheme of things, we do something so severe, could it actually cause us to lose our salvation? Like, is there a point in time that because we become sinners or because we leave, maybe we're prone to wonder from the God that we love, that maybe indeed he would just rip salvation away from us? And there is a prominent teaching that goes on that you could actually lose your salvation. But I want you to just hear this. Like, Hear what Jesus said in John chapter 10 verses 27 and following. He says this, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And then in verse 29, he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. He says, my father and I are one. He gives the idea here that he says, when you have a hope and an assurance of Jesus Christ, he said, I, you're in my hand, and he said the Father's hand is even greater, and nothing can snatch you out of them. Does he in any way imply that you could ever lose your salvation there? What about Philippians 1.6? Being confident in this, he who has began a good work in you will carry it until the day of completion. Until the day of Christ Jesus. What about Ephesians 4.30, that you're sealed for the day of redemption? What about 1 Peter 1, 3, and 5, that you have a hope, an assurance that never spoils or fades away, that's kept in heaven for you? That's the idea that Paul was speaking of here. He says to the church of Colossae, it is Christ and he is enough. He is what gives you assurance. And so the question then becomes is this, can Jesus sin? No. And so if Jesus can't sin, then it means you can't lose your salvation. Why? Because your salvation was never up to your perfect work. It was never about your story and about what you did. It was never about your good works. It was never about you getting your life together. It was all about Jesus standing in the gap as your perfect substitute on your behalf. And so the gospel was never, it was never about you in the beginning. And so if you didn't do anything to earn the gospel and God's grace through the work of the cross, then how can you do anything to lose that gospel? Even better question, I think, if Jesus can't sin, how many times would Jesus have to die before it finally stood? That it just finally took in your life. Because the bottom line, what Paul says is this Christ is enough, and your salvation is not up to what you do or what you don't do. However, with that said, should you produce fruit in the gospel? Absolutely. And he goes on and he answers that very question. But he says, It's about what you've already heard from Epaphras, the true message of the gospel that's come to you. And he goes, There's nothing else for you to need, there's nothing else for you to glean. He says, The gospel is, is in, in some ways, pretty simple. You're a sinner. You deserve death and condemnation and hell, and yet what? Christ gave his life for you. That because of the ransom and the purchase of the blood uh, and the atoning sacrifice, that you could have life and have it to the full, right? That if you would deny yourself, take of the cross, and follow Jesus, then you can have life and have it abundantly. That's the idea. And he says all of that is true for anyone who, what? Puts their faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's Romans 10 at it's best. So believe in your heart, confess in your mouth that he is Lord, and you would be what? Saved. And so he says, it's Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus your works. It's not Jesus plus your confessional. It's not Jesus plus you somehow meeting up with a priest or a monk at a monastery. It's not about you getting some uh, higher calling in your life to be a pastor. And he goes, no, Jesus is enough. Jesus is all you need. And then he continues on, verse 6. In the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world, just as it has been doing among you since the day that you heard and truly understood God's grace. Do you see what he does? He says the gospel is going to bear fruit. And the gospel is going to bear fruit all across the world. Like one of the greatest highlights of going on mission trips, and you know uh, we're taking mission trips here at Stone Point all across the year, and there's lots of different ones that you could choose from. But the reason that we encourage you to go is not simply that you could go and and just do something for the week. It's not just so that you feel good about yourself. One of the greatest things about the gospel is that it's being made known throughout the world. I mean, that's really the idea of Acts chapter 1-8, that the gospel would what spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth there is a tremendous work that's happening all across the world and like when i'm sitting in guatemala and i'm hanging out with some kids or when uh, our peeps are are there in costa rica and they're doing a vacation in bible school and they're singing or they're building a structure they're interacting with other people and though i can't ever speak their language or even understand what they say and i don't even attempt to I know that we have a commonality in Christ because the gospel is spread. And the gospel is spread through China and India. There are lots of places the gospel is being made known. And people are proclaiming the same Christ that you and I worship here in this little town called Wills Point, Texas. And the awesome thing is that the gospel is not prevented from spreading. Like, believe it or not, it's going to go other places. And, like, there's many of us that we would even say, well, I don't know why we keep trying to reach out because don't we need the gospel here? The reason we do that is because we can't stop the gospel. The gospel is not stoppable. It con- continues to spread, and it will spread wherever the gospel is, and it will bear fruit throughout the whole world, and it does so because of God's grace. And he says, you learned it from Epaphras in verse 7. Our dear fellow servant who is faithful minister for Christ on our behalf and who also told you of your love in the Spirit. Now, this is where it gets a little bit interesting. Okay, you ready? You're going to have to kind of hang with me a little bit. Look what he says. He says, you learned it from Epaphras. Well, earlier in verse 5, he says, it's the gospel in which you've already heard. And the idea, he says, okay, you've heard it from Epaphras. And he said, you've already heard it before. And so what he is saying is this, quit adding to it. Like the gospel's enough. Like you don't need to add to it. You don't need to to make it more difficult than it is. It's the idea that he says in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees, he says, you are unwilling, what, to carry the same load that you, you put on people. He says, quit making it legalistic. Quit trying to add philosophy to it. Quit trying to add mysticism to it. Quit trying to add other books to it. Quit. Do we quit trying to add other prophets to it? And so, what he does here is an amazing thing because he basically says is that the gospel, in which you've already heard, is enough. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus the Book of Mormon. It's not Jesus plus the Pearl of Great Price. It's not Jesus plus the Watchtower Bible Track Society. It's not Jesus plus some other great work. And so the question is, well, how do you know that the gospel is all we need? Like, how do you know that what we have here, this message, is all we need? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at John chapter 16. Hold your place there because we're going to come back and we're going to wrap it all up here in a sec. In John chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And this is the eve before his death. So he's going to go to the cross the next day. And he's going to say something to them that I believe has significant, significant weight on this text and on our Bible. And the reason I show this to you is because what Paul is essentially saying to the church in Colossae is this, quit adding things to the gospel. And I think you and I need to hear the same message today. Quit adding things to the gospel. But even more than that, you need to know that you and I should not be deceived. And how do we know things that are deceptive? Well, he's going to answer it here. And so in John chapter 16, this is what Jesus says to the the apostles, the guys that are following us. He's sitting with them, and in verse 12, he says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Now gather this. You've got the 12 with him. You've got one that's about to betray him. You, You literally have him sitting around these apostles in which he's poured three years of his life into and he says, I have much more to say to you, but I can't say any more because you can't bear it. And so, like, he says, you're already struggling to understand that I'm going to die and in three days rise again. Because Jesus said it. Even in John chapter 2, he told uh, his, his followers, he even told uh, the, what, the Pharisees and Sadducees, he said, he said, this temple will rise again in three days. And so the resurrection wasn't new, but do you re- remember Peter saying, no, Lord, you're not going to die Peter had a difficult time understanding that there was going to be a death, a burial, and a resurrection. They weren't at the tomb counting down 10, 9, 8. I mean, they weren't ready for him to come back. And so Jesus says, I've got much more to say to you, but you can't bear it right now. Like, they couldn't even gather what the rapture of the church was going to look like. There's no way they understood the verse Thessalonians 4 when he's coming back to receive us into himself, even though he said it in John 14 to them, didn't he? That's the glorious hope of the believer. Do not let your hearts be what? Troubled. Put your faith in what? God. Put it also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll not come back and receive you unto myself. They still didn't understand that. So they didn't understand the rapture of the church. They didn't understand the church age, what's going on now. They didn't understand the ministry and the gifts of the Spirit. He goes, there's much more I want to say. But look what he says from there. But it's more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. And and look, you and I interpret that one way because we look at it and we go, yeah, that's true. When the spirit of God comes, he will guide us. And we know that right now in the church age, the spirit of God guides us, right? That we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, yes? But for these 12, it meant something totally different. It meant that the Gospels are not all you're going to get. And he's saying this, literally, and all commentators that I've read would agree. They say, but when he, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. Meaning, there's going to be more. There's going to be a later revealed truth. What is it? My friends, it's your New Testament. He says, there's going to be a guy that's raised up, and he's going to have words to say. Peter, you're going to write. God is going to guide you, and he's going to instruct you in things to say. And there's going to be more text to our Bible. It's not going to just end with the prophets and the gospels. There's more to come, and the Holy Spirit's going to guide and interpret us in all these things. And look what it says in the latter part of 13. And he will not speak on his own, but he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. And so when you see the book of Revelation, you see that that's the end of what to come. And so here's what I want you to understand, and this is what I want you to know, and this is really truly the message that Paul was writing to the church of Colossae. He was saying the gospel is fairly simple. That you were dead in Christ, but you've been raised to new life in victory and hope the gospel through the cross. The Bible is your ultimate source of authority. It is what allows you to live in complete truth. And so I guide my life, I guide my family based off of the Scriptures. Not what I feel one day, not what other people think, not because of a good book that somebody gives me. It has a line with the Word of God. It is the truth in which the Holy Spirit reveals himself and the things of God to me and my life and even to our church, right? And so get this, I have no right to come to you in a year and say, you know what, I had this great vision and this dream from the Lord, and man, I think that he wants me to add a book to the New Testament. If I said that, what should you do? Run! Run! Why? Because I don't get to do that. I don't get to be a guy that did that. So who does? It was an apostle that was led by the Spirit. It was a man that was interpreted through the Holy Spirit. In accordance to what? What 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed, by God, profit for teaching, reproof, correction, training, righteousness, that what? We may be complete and equipped for every good work in Christ. It's the same idea in 2 Peter chapter 1.20.21, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture has come about from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but what? Men spoke from God as they cared along by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is interpreted to men what it was. But here's the cool thing. He said, it'll be truth that has come, but do you realize that the scripture has an end date? It was when John died in AD 90. And so Revelation is the culmination, is the final book. You have in Ephesians, or I'm sorry, you have in uh, Genesis, you have the Edenic Covenant. You have a man who fell because of his sin. And in Revelation, you see how everything is being put back in its proper place. And so what does that mean? Like, what does that mean to you and I? Well, here's what it means. It means when a Mormon shows up at your door and they knock on your door and they go, Hey, do you believe, do you believe that God could raise up a prophet and teach him more? And you would say, yeah, I mean, I guess he could. And although he could, you need to know that he doesn't. Yeah, God could do anything, but he doesn't. And so what has he done? He has given you the prophets. He has given you the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he has given you the epistles and the church doctrine that you see from Acts all the way to Revelation. He's even given you the what? The bookends. He's given you from everything you need to know from the beginning to the end when he says, I'm coming back. Do you see that? And so get this, you and I need to know that everything that we have is right here. You don't need to know what Joseph Smith was revealed to him in the Book of Mormon. Does that make sense? You don't need to know what Charles Taze Russell had to say. You don't need to know what Christian science and Mary Mary Eddie Baker had to say about it. You don't need to know about Adventism and what Ellen White had to say about it. You don't need to know about what Muhammad says about all of it. Why? Because they don't get to write on the subject. Why? Because they didn't know Christ, and they didn't know one of the apostles who did know Christ, and where everybody else does. And so there's an end date. And so why do I even tell you that? Like, why do you know that? Why do you need to hear that? Here's why. You ready for it? It's because you and I need to guard ourselves from teachings outside of the Scriptures. And one of the greatest ways that we can do that is if we have a point-blank argument already to say, no, at John's death, that was the end of our Bible. And so there's bookends. And that protects someone like me deciding that a year from now that I'm the new Savior and that I have a new revealed word and that Jesus was merely just a prophet and a man. There's more to come. Make sense? So how do you know that? You know it right here. And that's what Paul is saying. No, no, no. There's not more to come. No, we don't need your higher thought. We don't don't need what you think is so specialized. We don't need what you think is right. We don't need legalism. We don't need circumcision. We don't need all these things. Jesus is enough. Epaphras has told you this once. Remember what he said. Go back to it because he's right. And you get this from one of the greatest Judaizers that ever lived. The very guy who wanted to kill Christians, who's now converted for the cause of Christ, and says, no, it is indeed Jesus who changed my life. It is indeed Jesus who bore fruit in my life. It's Jesus who took me, what once was blind, and now I see. I once was dead, and now I'm alive. He goes, it's Jesus and nothing else. Does that make sense? And that's what he says. And then in verse 9, he continues and he says, For this reason, meaning, now that you know that Jesus is all you need, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you, for we continually ask God to fill you with knowledge. Why do they need knowledge? Because they're being tossed about to and from. He said, We've been praying that they would give, get you, that you would get wisdom. Why? Because they need wisdom in this day and age. We pray that you, you would have understanding that the Spirit gives. Why? Because they're being tossed into. To and fro. That's the idea of Ephesians 4, 4, 14 and 15. That you'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful uh, scheming. Instead, speaking in truth and love will grow and become, in every respect, a mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Meaning that you would grow up in your faith. How do you grow up in your faith? You got to get into the real deal. That's what protects you against the schemes of the the enemy. Does he want to attack? Yes. Does he even want to attack this church, fairly new, lots of new believers within the last two or three years? Absolutely. He would love for you to get mingled into other teachings, philosophy, mysticism, higher thought, this idea of gnosis. He would love that for our church. It would divide us in half. Why? Because this is an area right here that we stand firm on, and that's the Word of God. Amen? So we, we learn knowledge, wisdom, understanding, not for the sake of being smarter, not for the sake of telling people off who don't abide by what we say. We learn it so we can grow up, so that we're rooted, we're built up strength of the faith. That's Colossians 2. That we could overflow with thankfulness. That's the idea. We grow up in our faith so that we can stand firm. And Verse 10 says that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Why is it important to bear fruit? Because Jesus said himself in Matthew 7 that a man what, who loves him will bear fruit. Meaning that if someone claims to know Jesus Christ, you'll see the evidence that's displayed in their life. And so that's the idea. He says you grow, you mature, you understand the wisdom and the knowledge of God's word so that you're not tossed to and fro, that you grow up, you're no longer an infant simply drinking milk, what? But you grow up, you eat meat, you you sink your deep roots and you grow up to be mature. And so what? Mature trees do what? They bear fruit. I planted a a few trees uh, last week. And uh, they say they're peach trees. But I have no evidence that they're peach trees right now. Why? Because they're scrawny. And the, the winds that have blown in lately and all the rains got them looking like uh, they're not going to make it. And guess what? How am I going to have evidence that they're peach trees? Because next year they're going to produce some fruit. And if they don't produce fruit, then guess what? I'm going to dig them up and I'm going to burn them. And isn't that what Jesus said? And you're like, Whoa. Isn't that what he said in John chapter 15? He says, if a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 8, he says this, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. He says, you're going to bear fruit that will last. That's evidence of being a believer in Christ. You grow up, you mature, and you bear fruit. Something comes out of you that you don't possess naturally. There's something supernatural that takes place. And it is a result of what? The cross and the Spirit of God that lives in you as he guides you into all truth. In verse 11 it says, Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you would have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Who qualified you? Christ that you give joyful thanks to who, who, the, the very one who qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Like, what is it that made you, 1 Peter, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? What is it that called you out of darkness into his wonderful light? Christ! Christ! So, like, you're telling me, Brandon, like, it wasn't more than that? Like, I, it's not me going to church, me giving to church that qualifies me? No, you never qualified yourself. Matter of fact, you're the very thing that's disqualified you. You're the very thing that that keeps you from inheriting the kingdom of God. It is indeed your muck. It is indeed your sin. It is indeed all the filthy sludge that's in your life. It is the darkness in which you dwell in that prevents you from ever seeing the face of God. And yet, while you are yet a sinner, Romans 5.8, Christ died for you. Wow! Wow! And that's what should change us. Mold us, shape us, grow us, because He qualified you to live in the kingdom of light. He rescued us, verse thirteen, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the, son, the one of the Son that He loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. He says, "No longer do you have to live in darkness. Do you know what darkness does? It puts me to sleep. It'll lull you to sleep. You know what darkness does? It'll get you in a place where you're dark." And you're isolated. It leads to depression and anxiety. Darkness leads to a place in which sometimes you feel power to continue to sin because no one sees it. But ultimately, what darkness does is it separates you from the one true gospel, the light. And here's what the gospel says: the gospel, and when it's received, and when it dwells in you richly, when it produces fruit in you, it allows you to get this. It allows you to do something that no one else can do. It allows you to grab everything that's over here in the darkness, and you can bring it right here. Knowing that Christ has redeemed it, paid for it, and that it's been spoken for. And so, like, there's some of us in here, like, we we just mingle in our darkness. There's some of you in here that you're like, I live in a town and I live in a community that if they knew everything about me, they would have nothing to do with me. Well, here's how I stop gossip. You ready for it? You ready? Y'all want this? This is good for our town. You know how you stop it? You go, yeah, I did that. I did. I I did that. But Christ has spoken for it. Yep, that was me. I did. I drank way too much at that wedding. You know what? I just praise God that he, he spoke for it. Yeah, I, I did. I lied. I cheated on my taxes. I did. I've already paid the penalty. I paid them back. But hey, that's me. I, God's redeemed it. Isn't that cool? Yes, I lied. I did. It was easier for me to, to put the scapegoat on someone else than for me. But I did it, and Christ has paid for it. Yes, I was a lazy husband. I wasn't there when I needed to and my wife left, and I wish I could get it all back, but I confess that God has redeemed it. Yeah, I did that. That was me. But he called me out of my darkness into his wonderful light. And it wasn't about what I did, it was about what he did and he allows me to be free. That's the gospel. And what's awesome about it is that you don't need more than the gospel. The gospel is enough. It speaks on its own. Amen? Like, that's awesome to me. And So let me close with this. Luke chapter 23. You have a narrative about a couple of guys on the cross next to Jesus. As the hours progressed that day, you have people who were insulting Jesus, you have soldiers who are yelling at him and defaming him and as he has this sign over the top of his head that says King of the Jews, people are mocking, jeering, spitting on him and they're saying, hey, if you're the Savior, get off the cross if you why don't you do something if you're as powerful as the angels why don't you just go ahead and and take care of it all and jesus just says nothing and you've got one thief on one side and he just begins to pick up steam with the crowd and he mocks and he jeers and yet you have another one who might have started off in the morning with everyone else but as the hours progressed and he saw something about jesus he saw something that no one else saw He came to the point where he spoke less and less and less, and he began to take in more and more and more, only the point where before he took his last breath and before Jesus ever said and uttered the words that are the greatest words in history, it is finished, he professed his faith in Jesus Christ, and he said, indeed, I do believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God. Now think about this for a moment, because this is what Paul was trying to say to us and to every single person who reads the book of Colossians. Did that thief... Did he have the opportunity to get off the cross and kneel before Jesus? No. Did that thief ever get to the baptismal waters? No. Did, that ch- did, he, ever get, did he ever get to the confessional or to midnight mass? No, he didn't. Did he ever get to take the Lord's Supper and communion with everybody else? No. So what did he get? He got Grace. He got grace, knowing that while he stood in the proper place, nailed to the cross because he was a thief, a thug, and a sinner, God made him a saint instantly through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it was even before the words, it was finished. And so can you imagine that if he said today, you're not going to be in purgatory, you're going to be someplace out in the abyss, you're going to be with me, that to depart from the bodies to be present with the Lord, you're going to be with me today in paradise. How much more does that work together for us As the church, when Jesus declared the words, It is finished. That's the greatest words in your Bible. It is finished. What does that mean? It means I don't have to keep doing church out of legality. I don't have to keep going because that preacher keeps texting me. No, you go because you love Jesus Christ. You go because you believe that his cross was sufficient in your weakness. 2 Corinthians 12. You go because you believe that the gospel is going to be made known throughout the world. And yes, I know like you and me that we're not perfect. Got it? Man, I bring this crap out of the darkness and go, man, I'm not perfect. Man, as a pastor, I fail. Praise God that he said it's finished. Praise God that it's Jesus plus nothing else. Amen? And so I pray that First uh, or Colossians chapter 1, verses 1-14 are encouragement to you to know that here's what you need. You need Jesus Christ to build your foundation on the Word of God. And you don't need philosophy, higher thought. You don't need mysticism. You don't need legality. You don't need legalism to what, come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But you do need to know this, that if he lives in you, he is going to bear fruit in you, right? And so are you going to produce things? Yes, absolutely. But you're not producing them in your own strength or for your own merit. You produce them because Christ lives richly in you. He has rooted you. He has built you up. He has strengthened you in the faith. And he overflows with thankfulness out of you, Colossians 2. Why? Because you have put your foundation... On the solid rock of Jesus Christ I stand. No other what? Rock. No other hope. Nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's it. Amen? Let me pray for you, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the words, it is finished, more than that, I thank you that as you lo- look at the words, it is finished, that it's the perfect tense verb. It's done. It's it's perfect. It's There's nothing more to be done. And so, Lord, I pray that we would grab hold of those words, that, Lord, we would not be held captive by higher thought, by mysticism, by legalism, by Gnosticism, uh, by asceticism, uh, that we wouldn't be taken astray by uh, other people who claim to have had more. Uh, that Lord, that we would know that Everything that we need and everything that we have right here in the Word of God is sure and it stands on its own. And Lord, I pray that you would guide us through the Holy Spirit into all truth. Lord, reveal to us what it is that we're supposed to do. Lord, thank you that, Lord, that you didn't simply send your Son to redeem us and then go away only to leave us dangling out here on our own. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us the ultimate counselor, the ultimate helper in the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who indwells the believer, and, Lord, who guides us into your righteousness. Lord, we thank for your word that it corrects us, it trains us, it rebukes us, towards righteousness for your sake, for your glory. Lord, we thank you for the church. We thank you, Lord, that there are men and women who are able to come alongside of us and spur us on towards love and good deeds. We thank you, Lord, for, for people who sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Lord, we pray, God, that you would lead us toward those things, that you would dwell in us richly. Lord, help us to produce fruit that lasts Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. We love you, we thank you for the church, and we thank you for this text that you revealed through Paul and through guys like Epaphras who said the gospel in which we've already heard, the true message of the gospel is all we need. In Jesus' name, amen.